you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And we're going to pick back up in the middle of what we read last week. Last week we uh, were in Mark 4, 1 through 25. This week, uh, as promised last week, we'll be in Mark 4, 10 through 12. Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Let's pray. Father, would you help us this morning to make sense of this text in your word in such a way that would reveal Christ more to us, that would reveal his intentions to us, his purpose, his person, his work more to us this morning, not as we perceive him to be, not as we have made him to be, but as he is. Help us, Lord, to see your son more clearly this morning and to have joy in Him as we see Him more clearly. Father, would You help me to speak only what is in line with Your Word and anything else that might go against Your Word or not be entirely in line with it, would You burn it up for our good and for Your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. During the Sunday school lesson at one particular church, Miss Susie was teaching the preschoolers about the creation story. She read from Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 and following, about how God had made Eve from the rib of Adam. Next Sunday, little Johnny was lying on the ground in the Sunday school classroom, and Miss Susie was concerned about him. And so she asked him, what's going on, little Johnny? Why are you crying? Why are you holding your side? What's going on? And he said, Miss Susie... I'm really hurt. My side hurts. I think God's making a wife for me. You see, little Johnny had heard the story the previous week, but he didn't quite get it. He needed some extra explanation, some proper application. In our text this morning, Jesus tells us why He speaks in parables. If you were here last week, I told you that parables are stories, analogies, illustrations that help to paint a picture in the mind of the hearer of what's going on. And so last week we looked at the first of the parables in Mark chapter 4, that being the parable of the sower. And I told you from God's Word that we are to go out and sow the seed, the seed being the Word of God. And as we sow, we understand that the Word of God tells us that there are going to be some who receive it and some who don't, some who receive it for a time, and when things go wrong, all of a sudden they go back to their old ways. But there are going to be some who receive it and grow up and mature in the faith. And here in verses 10 through 12, Jesus is having a kind of sideline session with his disciples, with those who are mature in the faith. And he's telling them, he's telling his followers specifically, those who have been chosen to walk with him, what the parables are all about, what these stories or analogies are all about. Jesus backs up for just a moment, 
right in the middle of one of his parables to explain what the parable is about. The first thing I want us to see this morning is the mercy of Jesus. The mercy of Jesus. Now there's a hymn that regrettably is not found very often in many of our Baptist hymnals today called How Sweet and Awful Is This Place. And that's A-W-E-F-U-L, not A-W-F-U-L. The hymn writer is talking about uh, this place in mention being full of awe, being awe-inspiring, being uh, this awesome reality of being where this place is mentioned. And this place that it's talking about, how sweet and awful is this place, it's talking about this place of being in Christ of being found in Him, of being found in His will. And so when this talks of how sweet and awful is this place, it's talking about the awesomeness of being in Christ. It's not talking about uh, awful like uh, Aunt Margaret's green bean casserole that she insists on bringing to Thanksgiving dinner every year. That's not the kind of awful that the hymn writer has in mind here. It's this awesomeness of being in Christ. I wonder when the last moment that you sat back and realized how awesome it is to be in Christ. How awesome it is that God opened the eyes of your heart, enlightened your soul so that you could understand and accept and receive the things of God. How awesome is that? How awesome is that? Watts, Isaac Watts, the writer of this hymn, would say of the infinite beauty of God's grace, Why was I made? To hear thy voice and enter while there's room. Watts wasn't the first to ask this sort of question though. Listen to what the ancient hymn writer David said in Psalm 8 verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you would care for him? Who am I? Who am I that Jesus would bleed and die for a sinner like me? Who am I that God would have anything to do with such a person as me? You see, so often we like to ask this question of why me, Lord, when things are going bad. If we're honest with ourselves, we like to ask the question of when when there's traffic, we like to say, oh, traffic, why me, Lord? Or, oh, tax time again, why me, Lord? Another death in the family, why me, Lord? I must be a cold and flu magnet. I've had the cold twice this winter. Why me, Lord? We like to ask this question of why me, Lord, when it's in the negative. But what if we understood this question positively as David did? Or as Paul did when he said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now remember that Mark's Gospel is all about According to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is writing this entire 16 chapter gospel for the purpose of revealing to us who Jesus is, his divine sonship, his deity as the Son of God. So, how do we reconcile the reality that Mark's writing in this gospel serves to reveal the person and work of Jesus? While Jesus tells us here that sometimes, The parables serve to conceal the identity and work of Jesus. How do we make sense of those two things? Follow with me in verses 10 through 12 as we find one conjunctive phrase that 
allows everything to hinge upon this. And verse 10, as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you, again in verse 10, we're told that the disciples, those who have been chosen specifically to walk with him, those who are mature in the faith at this point, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, as we saw in Mark chapter 1, is the gospel of God. It is that Jesus has come, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of who Messiah would be. In other words, they're given the mystery of the identity and person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, there's the first conjunction or disjunction, but those who are outside get everything in parables. Here's the second. So that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. Max Anders, one commentator on Mark's gospel, helps us here saying, a theme of secrecy runs throughout Mark's gospel. Parables are more than illustrations. They are spiritual tests. They hide the truth from those who do not seek it, but they reveal the truth to those who do seek it. So again, how do we reconcile these twin realities of concealment and revelation? How do they work together? How do we make sense of why and how God reveals the truth to some and according to verse 11, conceals it from others? Answer, God's purpose or plan for salvation. God's purpose or plan for salvation. These words in this text tell us a simple truth about God. That God is sovereign over salvation. That is to say that He determines the terms of salvation. He does the accepting of us. We need His acceptance, not He needing our acceptance. He does the drawing. He does the revealing. He does the opening of the eyes of the heart. He does the saving. One preacher put it this way. We do the sinning. Jesus does the saving. We do the sinning. Jesus does the saving. And that's simply what this text tells us is that Jesus is the one who is in charge of the salvation that He brings. Max Anders again helps us here saying, for every parable there are two levels of understanding. The physical and the spiritual. Everyone there received the parables at the physical level. But the disciples were granted understanding at the spiritual level. The disciples, and this now includes us as believers, had been chosen as were the chosen people of God in the Old Testament, to have these truths revealed to them. We have been given a sacred responsibility. Okay, so now what? As my older daughter says, what in the whole serious world does this have anything to do with us? Am I just rambling on about nothing? Did Jesus do what so many preachers often have the tendency to do? And as He's preaching about this parable, here in verses 10-12, through He fell down a rabbit hole somewhere. What's going on here? How do we apply this 2,000-year-old text to us here this morning on July 9th, 2023 in a small Baptist church on the hill in Taylor County, Kentucky? How do we make sense of this? In a word, so what? Answer, joy. Joy. Humility, amazement, wonder, awe, worship, praise, thankfulness, and gratitude. All these things are bound up in answering what this text tells us. To understand salvation biblically, that is, that Jesus does not merely sit and wait around for us to accept Him, wondering 
who will, that He went to the cross and died, and then He just says, I hope it works. But rather, He went to the cross and had you, believer, on His mind. Knowing that 2,000 years from His death on the cross, that you would come to salvation in Him. Because you were one for whom your debt was paid. Understanding that brings great joy and rest, comfort and peace. Because I know that everything I have in my spiritual life is because of God's grace, pride is cut away and I am freed up from any kind of fear that I might lose the salvation that I've been given. It's all because of Christ that I stand here as a saved man this morning. Not because of any, of any work of my own, but all because of Him, because He has revealed His truth to me. Because I am numbered among those who He has set aside and called out to tell the truth to. According to verse 10, it says, As soon as He was alone, His followers, along with the twelve, began asking Him about the parables. And the, the reason that they began asking them about those parables is because Jesus had already done a work in them to cause them to follow Him. Once I know that He chose me, He loves me, He saved me, He keeps me, and that I will one day see the One who did all this for me, I am freed up to have ultimate joy in this life that is not contingent upon circumstances, but is entirely hinged upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that no matter what life throws my way, I can trust that God has a good and perfect plan for me. Listen to what the Bible says on the work of God in salvation. I'm going to go to a lot of different Scriptures here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? In other words, God opens the eyes or enlightens the heart. It is God who opens the eyes of the heart so that we see and receive the reality of the world. John 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in His name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, God empowers us to believe in Him by His will, not by ours or by our strength, but by God. 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. Romans 9.15 and 16, for He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills, or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. The, the Greek words for wills and runs, one is this idea of the will of the heart, the will of the soul, the will of the mind. The other one is the actions of the body. In other words, it doesn't depend on anything internally or externally of my own work. It depends entirely upon God for my salvation. Psalm 119.18 and Psalm 146.8 Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that day. Philippians 1, 6 and Hebrews 12, verse 2, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author or beginner or starter and perfecter or finisher and ender of the faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Ephesians 1, 3-8 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him. One more place, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So here's the story. Here's what verses 10 through 12 of Mark chapter 4 and all these other scripture scripture references that I mentioned this morning, here's what all of them serve to tell us. They serve to tell us that everything I have, everything you have, you who are in Christ, you who sit here this morning on the other side of the cross, having been saved, having been put to death the sins of the flesh and dying out and being buried in the tomb of baptism and being raised unto newness of life, you who sit here this morning in such a state, these Scriptures serve to tell us that everything we have is because of Jesus. Everything that you and I have is because of Him. My salvation, my family, my home, my health, my life my eternal destiny, my comfort, my peace, my rest, my faith, my job. Everything I have is from God. Everything. In James chapter 1, verse 17, we're told that all good gifts come down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow due to change. In other words, everything good in our life that we have is because of Him. Now let me ask you a question. Is faith good? Is salvation good? Obviously the answer to that should be a resounding yes. And so it has come from God. Everything that I have in my life is from Him. My salvation belongs to the Lord. It is from the Lord. It was started by Him. It is sustained by Him. It will be upheld by Him. I wasn't smarter than the next person who didn't understand the gospel. I wasn't stronger or more righteous than the next person who didn't believe the gospel. I wasn't more prone to respond to the gospel than the person whose heart was hardened against Christ. I am saved because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is entirely because of Him. I'm standing before you this morning as a saved man and with a song of praise to my God for one reason. Because God in Jesus Christ saved me from the man I once was, called me by name, drew me in, made me new, and sustains me for the rest of my days. I'm not who I used to be because I know now who I didn't used to know. I don't say the things I once did because He said my name and drew me to Him. I don't love the things I used to love because now I love Him who first loved me. Everything that I have is because of Him. Look at verse 11. To you, to you who are in this circle, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Who am I that God has told me anything about who He is? 
Who am I that I can understand a word of what this Bible says? It's all because of grace and mercy. It is because of the mercy of Jesus. Everything that you and I have is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've fallen asleep, amen goes right here. Everything I have is because of Him. Everything you have is because of Him. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. And I love you, but you didn't earn it and you don't deserve it. Everything that you and I have in Christ is because of Christ. Everything. It's His prerogative to reveal. It's His decision to reveal. It's His choice to draw. It's all because of Him. Now I'm going to tell you what my childhood preacher told me. If that right there doesn't light a fire of joy and excitement in you, your wood's wet. Move on to point number two with me. The mystery of judgment. The mystery of judgment. Now let's deal with verse 12. Verse 12. Let's read verses 11 and 12 so we have the context. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. Again, there's this distinction between the goats and the sheep. There's this distinction between those who were gathered in verse 10, called out among the larger crowd at hand. Because remember, go back up with me to Mark chapter 4 verse 1. He began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. In other words, what happened is this crowd is so massive that Jesus didn't even have a place to stand on the land. Now in the previous text, in Mark chapter 3, we see that the crowd was so large that the people couldn't lift up their arms to break a piece of bread and hand it out. But now this crowd has grown even more to where they can't even stand on the land anymore. Now Jesus is out in a boat in the middle of the sea preaching to the crowd that's all along the seashore. But here in verses 10 through 12, He's not speaking to everyone here. As soon as He was alone, verse 10 says, His followers along with the twelve began asking Him about the parables. And then He says, verse 11, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. Verse 12, So that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. Now that phrase, so that, that conjunction there, so that, here's the purpose of why, they're, uh, why, why uh, those outside are given everything in parables. Here's the reason for that. Here's why Jesus does that. While seeing they may see and not perceive. It's to conceal. It's to conceal. So let's deal with this in two ways, positively and negatively. First, positively or explicitly or in the active, what does this verse mean? What does it mean that God gives in the person and work of Jesus these parables for the purpose of concealing from some? What does that mean? The inability to see and hear the truths of Jesus' parables and the coinciding truths in them is found in one word. That inability is found in one word. Rebellion. Rebellion. God's passing over of some so that in them He might display His justice and wrath is due to their rebellion. It's not due to some hatred on God's part, but because of their rebellion. Because they have gone their own way. Because they would rather love the things of the world than the things of the Word. And so God says, hey, you want that? Go for it. 
If that's really what you want, Romans chapter 1 says, I'm going to hand you over to more of it. And it's eventually going to Romans chapter 2, verse 5, destroy you. So what it does mean is that God is passing over them in their rebellion. In other words, God says, you want that? You want to go and roll around the pigsty of your sin? Well, that's fine. Go ahead. Go ahead. I've given you the teaching. I've performed these miracles. I've shown you who I am time and time again. And you still do not believe. So go ahead. This is a strong word that tells us that there comes a time when God turns us over to our sin. When God says, I've shown you the truth. I've told you the truth. It's right there in front of you. And you refuse to believe it because of your rebellion. So go ahead. Do what you want and see what it brings you. Now the tendency is to say, well, that's just not fair. That's just not fair. God should keep trying. He should keep trying. He should keep trying. He should keep trying. That's just not fair. Well, hold on there. Let's talk about what fairness is. Let's talk about what it means for something to be fair. Fairness, as defined by the dictionary, is getting what we deserve. Getting that which is equitable. Getting that which is just. Getting that which makes sense. A due recompense for that which we have earned. Well, let's apply that. In Romans chapter 3, we're told that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Genesis 2.17 and in Genesis 3.3, God promises Adam that if he sins and goes his own way, he will surely die. He will be cast out away from God. What does Romans 6.23 say? The wages of sin is death. Look, I go to work, I clock in, and I do my job. And as a result of me doing my job, I expect to get a paycheck in return. My wages for work, my wages for scanning documents in throughout the day is a paycheck in the form of money. That way I can go buy really expensive milk and eggs. The wages of sin, the payment of what I've done, The payment of who I am in the flesh, in Adam, by my nature, is death. It's death. That's what I've earned. That's what I deserve. The consequence of sin is death. The wages or payment earned for sin is death. And so here's what verse 12 does mean. Mark chapter 4 verse 12. Here's what it does mean. God, in concealing that which is necessary for salvation for some, namely a saving faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, is not wrong of Him. He is not in the wrong for passing over some or for concealing the truth from some. Why? Why isn't He in the wrong? Because He doesn't owe salvation to anyone. He doesn't owe His blood spilled out on on Calvary's cross to anyone. To say that He owned it would make it no longer to be grace and mercy, but instead to be something that we've earned. If He never saved anyone, He wouldn't be in the wrong for that. 
Because each and every one of us in this room and each and every one of us on this street and each and every one of us in this county and each and every one of us in this state, each and every one of us in this nation, each and every one of us in the, on the globe, all deserve death for our transgression against God. That is what we have earned. That is the wage of our work. So the fact that God passes over some does not mean that He is an evil God. It means that He's showing His justice upon some by passing over them and saying, keep going in your rebellion. And it's going to end at a dead end of my wrath. There's going to be a day that His hands are extended in mercy. And He's going to pull back that hand of mercy and all that will be left is His wrath. And he says to some, keep going and you'll get that. Now negatively, what does this text not mean? What does it not mean? What is Jesus not saying here? Jesus is not implying in any way that He turns people away. In Romans 10 verses 9-11 through 11, we're told that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Romans 10.13 says, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this text is not saying that someone comes to Jesus and says, I want you, I want salvation, I want a way out of my sin, I want a way out of hell, I want to be with you for all of eternity, I love you, I cherish you, I find joy in you, everything I have is from you, I understand that, I believe that, I'm repenting of who I was and believing in who you are. And Jesus says, no, not you. This text does not imply that. That is not what this text is saying. I believe all those verses that tell us that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why do I believe them? Because they're in this book. And hey, if I didn't believe a word of what was in this book, I would hand in my resignation today or expect you to fire me tomorrow. Because this book is what we stand on, is it not? And so everything in this book, I believe. And everything in this book, I hope you believe whether it's difficult for us to understand or not. So all this talk about God choosing and predestining and Him accepting us and not passing us over, but passing over some, all of that's really difficult to understand. But in Romans chapter 9, I encourage you to go there. Because Paul asks these, this series of questions. Questions which, if our understanding of fairness were the reality of how God dealt out salvation those questions wouldn't exist. Questions of, well, why does God still find fault? Well, how does God make that determination? These questions are in Romans 9. Questions which, again, would not exist if our understanding, our fallen and carnal understanding of what's fair were the reality of how God dealt out salvation. What this does not mean is that God turns people away who truly want to come to Him in saving faith. But what it does mean, what this text does mean is that anyone who comes to Him, desiring after Him, comes to Him because He has already been at work in them. 
Because He's already been drawing them. John 6.44 No one comes to Him unless they have been drawn by Him. Let me give you an example. You get up from your pew. You walk an aisle. You kneel down at an altar. You pray a prayer. You say you believe in Jesus. You're repenting of your sins. Why? Why? Why did any of that happen? Was it just because you were sitting there and all of a sudden you said, I think I want something different in life. Or because all of a sudden, after all the sinfulness you had committed in the past, you said, I don't want that anymore. That's putting the cart before the horse. The reason you got up was because of conviction by the Word of God. The reason you had strength to walk to an altar and, and pray a prayer is because of God giving you that strength. The reason you believed in Him in that moment is because of His gift of faith. The reason you repented is because of His good work being enough for you to place your trust in it and to say, I believe that He is enough. I am not enough. No matter how many books in the supermarket tell me I am enough, I am not enough. If I was enough, I wouldn't need Jesus. I am not enough. But I trust that He is enough for everything that I need. And all of that is because of Him. John 15, 16, Jesus plainly says, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of My Father in My name, He may give to you. I know we went to a lot of different Scriptures this morning. But Mark chapter 4, verses 10-12 through 12 is this small moment in the midst of this larger moment of preaching that Jesus takes His disciples aside and says, here's why you know the truth. Here's why you believe. Here's why you trust in Me. Here's why you do and they don't. It's not because you're better than everyone else. It's not because you're stronger than everyone else. It's not because you're smarter than everyone else. It's not because you're just more susceptible to believing than everyone else. Jesus says, it's because of Me. It's because I've revealed it to you. In a word, it's all about Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. And it's all for Jesus. God gives eyes to see and ears to hear and tender hearts to receive and open minds to accept. So I'd ask you this morning, has God done that for you? Has God used His Word in such a way to prick your hard heart to show you the reality of your sin and your need for a Savior? And is God drawing you in this very moment to come to Him in salvation? Come to Him in salvation. Listen to the lyrics of this hymn. I once was lost in darkest night. Every one of us can say that. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. 
But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cross, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And because God's love displayed, you offered, you suffered in my place, you bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I have is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. I wonder if you can say those last two things of your life. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for who You are and for Your Word. And I ask that even in spite of my frail and weak efforts to preach Your Word, that You would help us make sense of it this morning by the power of Your Spirit, by the enlightenment of Your Spirit. Help us, Lord, to have great joy in You because we understand that we don't deserve anything we have and everything we have is from You. Lord, would You light a fire of joy underneath each and every one of us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.